0: Welcome to Lead Sex at Nova School of Business and Economics, the podcast where every week we go over the major trends that are impacting change and transformation in our world. Welcome to another Lead Sex podcast at Nova School of Business. This is a very special episode since we have as our guest Daniel Praça de dean to discuss the future of education. More than a courtesy invitation, because he's kind of our boss, I'm really excited about this podcast. He was the first person inviting me to teach eight years ago. And Daniel has built one of the best campus I've seen, and in a very creative way. We'll go more into it. And after teaching all over the world in several universities, I have to tell you that uh, every year I'm impressed with the quality of the students of the organization of everything. So I actually think Nova is right now one of the best business schools in the world, as it was said by the Financial Times as well. And uh, that's a lot responsibility of uh, Daniel and his team. So Daniel is also a visiting professor at INSEAD in France and Singapore. Uh, Previously he was assistant professor at INSEAD and held the the Mary A. Alain Philipson chair in managing for sustainable human development at the Solvay Business School in Brussels, that was long, uh, where he was vice president and director of the MBA program. Daniel was visiting professor in the KDI School of Management and Policy in Seoul and in the Graduate Institute of International Economics in Geneva. Daniel graduated from Nova School of Business and Economics and um, obtained his PhD from Columbia University in, in New York. He has worked as a consultant for the World Bank and European Commission and published his scientific research in several leading international academic journals in the field of globalization and economic development. And in general, I've known him for a while and he's just a great and fun guy. So welcome very much, uh, Daniel. And we are here today with our student co-host, Alessandro Pedersoli. So, we are during... um, COVID pandemic, we are recording this in October 2020. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that we are watching is remote education. Universities have closed. They are closing again. Uh, Nova uh, is doing a great job and actually they've been on campus, but situation is changing every day. Um, Daniel, I have a question um, on remote education. Let's start by that because it's something really important. Right now, what most classes and uh, schools are doing is getting a physical class and putting a camera on it. Uh, And we are having a little bit like death by Zoom. It's like uh, just videotaping uh, these long classes. How do you think technology should be used for remote education?
1: Hi David, thank you for the introduction and above all, thank you for having me here. Uh, to discuss some of these uh, exciting topics that I've been working on for a long time. And you basically start with the one where I think we've learned more after COVID. I I remember about five years ago when you would go to meetings of business schools from around the world, the conversation was that everything was going to go digital and the keyword was MOOC, massive online open courses. And that very quickly, these these MOOCs would actually kill our traditional business school and would take our place. Well, that hasn't happened, uh, and that's taken a long time for us to understand that it has happened. And I have to say that after COVID, I am sure that won't happen. Because I think COVID has truly taught us that education needs a presential learning. Face-to-face is critical, faculty prefers it, students prefer it, and as a result, and the learning is stronger in that way, okay? And so I, I'm now more confident that the campus that we built, which we, we had the, in the beginning we thought this, this was the future, I'm now much more certain that this will be the future.
0: Yeah, especially the campus you've built, because for the people that don't know about it, the campus is just unreal, and it has a tunnel to go to the beach where students can go surfing. So just the conditions, the, the infrastructure, the location, and I think one of the things that, that I believe, Novel is already like a very well-considered university, but I think now it's having a, a, an upward spiral because like the location and the campus is so good, uh, better uh, uh, faculty is going to want to join and then better students and better faculty. And I think it's go- just going to go up. So I, I fully agree with that.
1: Yeah. But, but I think that there's one element of the campus that you didn't mention that I think is the most important one for me. Which is that this campus was designed so that students are in class learning but when they go out there's a lot of space for them to socialize it's not a campus where you come you go to class and you leave it's a campus where you meet other people and so the reason why online will not replace my thinking and will not replace presential is not just because what happens inside the classroom it's what happens on the campus when people just bump into each other and and, and, and start things together and so I think that clearly, this was the bet that we made when we built this campus. And I think that bet after COVID, for now, we are 100% sure was the right thing to do, and we'll have a great future going forward. This set, this set, I also believe that a lot of it will be digital in two dimensions. I think that a lot of traveling that was occurring will stop occurring. For example, I, I, my campus is in Kashkaij. I used to have to travel to Lisbon, to have meetings. I no longer do that. And so, because there the savings are very clear and meetings that you can have with people that you know, you can have them uh, uh, interface on, 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 a, on a digital interface and it's almost as productive. If it's like one-to-one or one-to-three. It's different when it's one one person speaking to a classroom of certain. But one-to-one, and one-to-two, that works well in a in, in, in computer. The second thing that I think will work is that the classroom, a lot of it is going to be face-to-face, but digital methods will be important in actually increasing the efficiency. For example, group meetings. For example, having the materials distributed online. For example, having uh, exams that will be done in a computer context where uh, code of conduct is, is better managed. So. What we, what I feel has changed for us is that we have changed a little bit in using technology to increase the effectiveness of the face-to-face contact, which is gonna be the critical element of learning.
0: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I, I've been studying and actually I'm implementing here in Mexico, a couple of um, of things that you mentioned, But um, and I'm writing an article with a little provocative title, which is sex is not the same as watching a porn movie. And uh, what it says is like it's not the same having the physical experience as just recording it, Uh, because what we are seeing in meetings and everything we are seeing on one hand, like people are more productive because they have less commuting time. But then we are just like recording classes and the dynamic of the, the teaching doesn't change. For instance, I think technology, uh, I think you need like inverse education, like have the students prepare the materials and get them more like to the same level before class. I really believe um, in adaptive adaptative education while you're basically just regulating the level and the class be more a a place of discussion. And then even the interaction, which uh, what I really don't like about Zoom is that it's just very dull. And you're not taking advantage of um, of the um, of the technology in itself. Like having more questions, have people participating. One thing we are trying out now as well is with uh, VR. Uh, and actually, we had a, a really interesting uh, podcast with this um, guy from um, Lucid Reality Labs, and uh, they are doing also classrooms in virtual reality. So I, I agree with you. Like putting together this technology that makes the digital class really a digital class and just not a recorded uh, physical class. Now, but how was, how was the change process? Because this podcast was a lot of change. So from how much warning did you have that you had to go remote? How well-prepared were you? How did you go around and make the change in the university?
1: Well, that was, that was one of the critical elements. Uh, so on the 12th of March, I found out that we had one student that was infected. The 12th of March was a Thursday. We had started preparing to plan, and I had once student infected. And it was 10:30 in the evening when I found out. And at 11:40, 11, I think at 11:30, I decided we were going to shut down the campus. So okay. I spent an entire evening without sleeping, preparing, drafting, and basically calling the security guards here to send everybody home at 2, at 2 a.m. So this is in real time, I'm telling you this in real time as we are deciding, we're implementing. And then on the morning, that morning, I sent an email to all the faculty saying, we're gonna go online, this was on a Thursday, we're going online on Monday, and just do whatever you can. You know, use Zoom, use BBB from Moodle, use Teams, use whatever you can, go online, pick your students. And the faculty was amazing. And the faculty was amazing in basically being flexible and coming up with solutions right this was the first part and, and and the students were tremendous in understanding this had to happen and being very understanding okay and, and because basically the
0: students it. i think i think just on that like because the students at the end they are paying for uh, a full experience like you said like one of the things you believe it's more important in the campus is a whole social experience and right now they that part is kind of kind of Lacking, how how has been the reaction of the students? And is there any workaround?
1: So right now we're back on campus. But at that time, I think when the crisis hit, everybody said, listen, we have to come together. So I I, I, I was communicating on a daily basis with everybody, explaining why was happening, why we were making these decisions. For example, we decided very early that regardless of what would happen, the, the rest of the semester would be completely online. And I explained, we have students coming from Italy, from Germany, from France. These people need to go home and they cannot go home thinking they have to come back last minute. So this is the reality thing. We need to have certainty. There's already too much uncertainty around. We need to have transparency. We need to communicate. So we went online very quickly and we went online for the rest of the semester and that was it. And it wasn't perfect. But one reason, for example, I had a student coming from Germany uh, on, on one of, my, one of my, my breakfast with students and she was saying, well, what happened in Germany is that the schools, we went home and it took us two weeks to actually get classes going there, right? And so, so, but this was the first, the first moment is all hands on deck. We do what we can, but we need to get, make sure that these students don't waste time. So we need to basically get them back in the classroom. It's not perfect, but it's better than not having. And this was the entire first semester. The second, when, when when we went on the vacation, we realized we need to come back, and so we planned everything to make sure that we would be able to come back on campus come September. This meant making sure that we we got some help in making sure that the campus was as safe as possible, having very strict codes of conduct to make sure that everybody on campus is wearing masks, and, and creating our own systems to protect students. For example. We, we trade, we ourselves trace all instances of contacts of students and we send students home if they've been close contact. We don't wait for the authorities to do this. Right, so all these and at the same time, we work on the dimension of safety on campus and we work on the dimension of improving The, the digital experience or on the digital side, as I said, most of the stuff is on campus, but in order for the campus to be safe, we cannot have the same capacity. We we have to put fewer students in each classroom, So we have to blend on campus with digital and on the digital side. We need one of two things. We had what we call temporary digital. We call it remote learning. For example, for the bachelor program, students have one class on campus, one class at home. This will go away once COVID ends. But But we also have digital transformation. For example, in some of the big master's courses, we did exactly what you suggested, blended, uh, blended learning, where students, the faculty no lo- is no longer remote low quality, is high quality with videos that the faculty has produced over the summer so that students do some of the sessions, they look at the videos to catch up, and then they come to class level and ready to discuss. Yeah. And this will stay even after COVID. So we're not just using, we we're not just reacting to COVID by putting some classes that because of space, we have to be online, part of it is remote. But we actually leveraging COVID to increase the speed of change that couldn't have been otherwise. Universities <laughs> are institutions that do not change. And, and, that's, so-
0: and that's, one, that's actually one of, the, um, one, of the, um, one of the questions I have for you, because like, uh, I've been with you guys for eight years now. And uh, I've been on private universities, in public universities, in Mexico, in the US, and so on. And and there's something that I'm pretty amazed. Being a public university and being a university, which usually they are famous for not changing, how did you manage to create like a dynamic team the way you did? Um, And also like, if you can tell us a little bit what you came up with the solution for getting the new campus, the financing and everything, because I, I find it pretty innovative. So how, how did you actually get on a public institution that usually they are famous for being extremely bureaucratic, slow, people sometimes not caring there uh, that much? How did you get that culture into, into the school and then actually that ends up in uh, these ex-libris levers is uh, the campus now?
1: I'll say two things. I'm one of those. I don't, I'm not, I I don't have a much institutional stance that private versus private or public. I think it's about people. Yeah. It's about people. It's about energizing people with hope and with the desire to create change. So I I don't think you, you, you you create change unless you inspire and, and inspiration is the first part of it. And inspiration comes from either the urgency. We have to do this or we die which is, for example, what we did in COVID. Yeah. Or intuition comes from the sense that, you know, we can, we from purpose, from, you know, if we do this, what we're gonna do for the world, for, for ourselves, for the people around us is amazing. And so I think that these are two, the two ways you create change. You have to inspire and you're inspired you inspire by basically fear or you inspire by purpose. And in the end, what you do is you do a package of these two things, okay? And so it, I think it's about, leadership, basically. And so I I don't know, I cannot give you a recipe, but I know that if if I could not deliver this, I wouldn't be here because, you know, even for myself, purpose matters. And so unless I am here feeling like change is coming, we're growing, we're changing universities, and above all, I speak to my students and I feel that they are inspired themselves by the school and what the school represents, I wouldn't be here. And I think in the end, at schools, we have to have that feeling, as, as, as school administrators, we have to have that feeling that our students are inspired by the school. They're not just here because it's a good degree that, that is top on the Financial Times. They are here because they're inspired by what the school represents, by what the school does, and by what they are learning.
0: So what are, your, what are your KPIs? How do you measure a good university? Because what, uh, in your opinion, how should like a student uh, or parents that are helping their kids, uh, making a choice, what do you think it's like, what are the KPIs for you that uh, make a good university, a good school?
1: I, 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 I think ultimately is the journey of the student. And by journey, I don't mean just what they learn, what they learn matters. But it's the journey on their road to purpose. Because I, I, I'm one of those that believes that without purpose, life is some, somewhat empty. And yeah. so my, desire, I mean, I always my 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 values and, and when I went in a school and the value that I think we need is our responsibility towards students. It's about purpose. It's about responsibility, and it's also about skills, right? And so if you ask me, for example, we 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 created this thing last uh, two years, which was called the Academy of Purpose. And it's it's an idea that has been brewing, and eventually will come to life, and will we'll, at a grand scale. Because I think that we live in a world where you know, where you know there's just too much volatility, uncertainty, uh, lack of hope, and universities need to do this. I think we need to change our social responsibility. We're no longer just places where students go to learn skills. We are places where students need to go to learn to figure out you know once they graduate, once they move from students where basically someone is telling them what to do to a time where they're actually going to figure out what their, their role in society is, what their role in life is, we need to help students make that journey. So my KPI, and I, I still can't measure it, but if I could, it's really what percentage of my students gets out of this and come back, comes back to me and tell me the time that I spent here has allowed me to figure out really what my life should be about, and to have the energy to go after
0: that. Now, yeah, how- so you're basically you're after you're supporting students to become the best versions of themselves as people, not just uh, amazing professionals, like uh, many people believed
1: in the past. I agree. I agree, and I, I I think that's exactly the point. But this, I think, is a change that universities need to make. I think it's a change that comes with our times. I mean, we move from times where people were set up for a career. Their career would be the same company, probably doing the same thing, and so and, and probably doing stuff that their parents had told them to do, because life, the world wasn't changing this fast. We now have a generation of people that no longer feels like they want to do exactly what their parents expect them to do, are going to change lives, and probably they're going to change careers many times in their lives, where they have opportunities anywhere in the world where they can choose. There are just too many options. And when you have too many options, if you don't have a sense of who you are and where you want to go, that is a sense of purpose, you end up being someone who's going to choose your path. And I tell them, the worst thing about you not choosing your path is someone else doing it for you. And so we need to basically work on this. Now, this is a big challenge, David, because what happens is that most universities have not been designed. Most faculty has not been trained to do this. And so my challenge at the school, and, and you talked about change. You talked about innovation. My challenge of the school is to inspire each one of us to seek ways to create this. So it's basically innovation, innovation, innovation. It's innovation driven by purpose and purpose driven by innovation. And so that's the way I think schools need to be these days. If I, can, I, I could do this because I found a tremendous environment here at Nova. Had I not found it, I wouldn't have been here.
0: Yeah, you know that um, at, the, at the beginning of the, the course of digital strategy and transformation, the first class they were, it was the first class actually for many of them of the masters and I didn't know at the time, but um, I think a, a few of, I had some clients calling me from Mexico, hey, people are crying in your class. I was like, okay. Uh, but uh, we did a really interesting uh, exercise that was uh, every student had to come to the front and it's like, okay, how do you want to change companies and do digital transformation and all these things if you can't start by changing yourself? So all of them came to the class and Marika and Alessandro were there Um, and uh, they had to speak about their biggest fear and they had to uh, commit to the class what they would do out of their comfort zone during the the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, we had some pretty interesting uh, results And and the idea is exactly that. It's like not only it's how people can start to get out of their comfort zone and can start changing, and they can have like um, follow follow a little bit who they are and get to know who they are as well. That's um.
1: This is what we want to do in the Academy of Purpose. It's basically go back to the why and the why and the why and the why. Why am I afraid? Why am I doing this? Why am I making these calls? Why am I learning it? Why did I come to Nova?
0: Yeah.
2: Why do I why yeah.
1: my friends? It's the why, the why, the why. And so, and this is the, for me, this is one of the big projects I still want to leave. I still have two years on my term. It's one of the big projects I still want to wanna, wanna leave done.
0: Yeah, we are working. Uh, I've been working in four, in four dimensions uh, in education, and the four dimensions are the mental, which is more like the hard skills, and then the, the physical, which is like if you have a body that is like a car for your whole life. And if you want to be a top performer, you have to keep it in shape. Then the other one is emotional and spiritual. And basically, how we can support people develop these four areas to become the, the best version of themselves for them so that they they feel good. Now, there's also like something that I I, I try to mention a lot, which is digital personal transformation. And yesterday, we were recording a podcast. Um, and we were mentioning that due to AI automation and so on, according like to McKinsey, I don't know, 30 to 60% of current jobs are going to disappear the next um, 10, 15 years. How do people should prepare for what's coming? Because like even like the jobs that are very trendy now, like digital marketing, most likely they will be completely automated by algorithms in... Uh, in uh, 10 years what you suggest?
1: that's a good question david I, I think again um i come back to purpose because i think i think the way you what you asked is important I, I think the world will be changing so much that you clearly need to have a sense of who you are otherwise you're going to get lost very very quickly and so having that that north star that guides you through your life is critical but our, in terms of pure skills, and, and, I, and so I think this soft stuff becomes very important So these north Thought sense of purpose, the ability to learn, the ability, the adaptability, these kinds of things, to make sure that you're open enough to, to change all the time, to constantly change, and put yourself, so these very soft stuff, I think is going to be very defining uh, element of success. In terms of more specific skills, I think we, I think there are two stages, there are two phases. One is the, uh, the the medium term, that is over the next three years. The Next three years are going to be very digital. Uh, so I mean, we we just launched a master's in business analytics. We have courses in business analytics and machine learning in all uh, in all the master's programs, and so we're now allowing students to get these skills. Okay. So, uh, but I don't. I think this is going to this is going to have a half life of four or five years.
2: Yeah.
1: Five years this is going to be a commodity. Yeah. Because I think most of our students, they need to understand, you know, what machine learning is, how it works, but then they're not going to be able to crunch it because very soon it's either going to be crunched by engineers or it's going to be crunched by machines themselves.
0: Yeah. Right?
1: And so very quickly that this phase will move into phase two where your skills are basically what I call the three or the four C's creativity. Okay, collaboration, very important. Courage, courage to decide fast and without information. Okay, mm-hmm. being able to communicate effectively, right? So these are, the kind, these are the kinds of things that I think matter. And the, the interesting issue is that these kinds of skills, I think it's very difficult to learn them in a the classroom. So my bet for the school in that respect is to create a huge entrepreneurship hub here. Because I, I don't see entrepreneurship as if every student here is gonna create their own companies. But if I get them involved in projects, in in project driven learning, in entrepreneurship projects they need to take, they're going to actually develop these skills, collaboration, creativity, the courage to take decisions, communicate, uh, communication. So these are the kinds of things. And I think in eventually in five years, if you bring that together with a kush of technical skills that allows us to speak to engineers, to speak to architects, to speak to designers, you basically have what it takes and I think that and on top of this, you have a sense of your direction and where you want to be. I think this is what's going to
2: be uh, synonymous with success. So I really Perfect. like this. Of, yeah, sorry. I really like this concept of a uh, student centric model where like uh, the aim is to try to improve the experience of the of the student and as a student, I think um, we are already seeing some trends, for example. Um, it could happen that a higher flexibility of uh, the courses or um, a more uh, integration between education and work could could improve the, the educational journey. And so do you think the lifelong learning could be a thing in the future? And how do you think this trend of personalization could change the way courses and programs are designed? So I think
1: lifelong learning is for sure. I mean, it has to do with the notion of of the world changing so fast and you needing to be kept up to date. I think lifelong learning relates to one element that I think is very important that I call the unlearning. And unlearning is going to be as important as learning. That is your ability to base, and it's not easy at all, right? You, You think something is true, and that something may not be true Eventually in your life, and you guys are very young, but when you get to David's age, it, it, you're going to basically assume that all that you've learned is true, right? So lifelong learning is the ability to keep on learning, but also the ability to unlearn and change. So it's change, change, change. It's your ability to change, right? And so I think, I think you have you have a great master in change with David because he is a man that is constantly changing through his life. Maybe a bit too much, no David.
0: well some people might say that yeah i'm fine
1: but so, but i think this is the kind of change that we're going your life will dimension it's not even your job your life will dimension so this is one thing the second thing is as you learn how'd you
0: go just one one quick thing because i think unlearning is a really important concept how'd you go about unlearning myself yourself and how would you recommend for people to go about and learning because i i think never
1: never be sure never be sure sure. you need to basically realize that everything i tell my students everything that i teach you here everything that i discuss with you i am just a guy speaking that's it i am a little bit more experienced than you but i i don't hold the truth i'm not teaching the truth here the truth It doesn't exist. What exists is learning that is useful, that inspires you, that leads you to change, that helps you solve problems, right? And and, and this is very important because universities were set up on this concept of truth, that there are some truths associated with knowledge. There isn't. There isn't. You know, today we're wearing masks. Four months ago, they still did not wear masks. Is this a problem? No, we've learned. They weren't useful before, they're useful now. Right? Let's not be the, oh, you, you you changed. It's okay. It's okay to change, right? And, and, and this means that you need to look at everything that happens around you with the notion that nothing is forever. There's no such thing as truth. There is knowledge in your mind that is useful or unuseful that is inspiring or, 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 or not inspiring. If something is not inspiring you, keep it out, right? You, you, be, be, you have to be more utilitarian, pragmatic with, with the stuff that goes on in your mind.
0: But how do you, but um, persistency and actually like uh, being able to stand like periods that are not very comfortable, actually like a lot of change happens when you're feeling uncomfortable. So how how should people differentiate between this is not inspiring me and this is like the natural learning curve. Like when you're learning, for instance, to snowboard, you know that the first three days you're going to be hurting a lot. And then you start enjoying. But often you have to go through this. How do we confuse inspiration? How how, How do we differentiate inspiration? uh, uh, from the period that, uh, you need to go outside your comfort
1: zone? Because yeah. So how how do you separate inspiration from comfort, right? This is your question. Yeah. And I think the two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, if I wanted to be comfortable, I wouldn't wake up at six in the morning to, to do my, to go, to go to the gym or then to come here to work. That's not comfort, but I know it's something I have to do. And it has to do with the way I want to live my life because I sense the purpose. This is the way I want to live my life because I know how I want to live my life. I wouldn't be standing here the hours that I do. It's just a notion. That's why purpose comes, come, purpose comes from the notion that you know how you want to live your life. Right. And and if you know what you want to live your life, it doesn't always have to be comfortable, but it makes sense to you. Yeah. Right. And it's, I mean, what I'm talking about knowledge is that it makes sense to you. You know, these things, these, these, I mean, today, for example, you know, you had this big debate, you know, what is the role of companies? What is the role in society? Is it about making money? Is it about, as a CEO, what choices should you have to do? Eventually, you need to feel comfortable with them. Because one thing is for sure, most of the stuff that happens to you in your life, it just happens. Mm-hmm. And what you take home every day are the choices that you've made. And so you need to feel comfortable with those choices. And for this, you need to have that sense. You know, this is what I want to do. This is what I think it has to be done. And I am, comf- I am at ease with this. Right? And so again, so and, and, and this was true, I think, in our parents' generation, but it was much less so because you know there was a lot of predictability. Now, I think this is fundamental for these kids. Got, they can do whatever they want, but they need to figure out what they want and why they want
0: so you have where you where you want to go you have your purpose and then you know that sometimes yeah. you have like a harder a harder path sometimes, And about to, yeah.
1: Yeah. sometimes you're gonna have to sometimes you, you're gonna have to change your mind sometimes you're gonna to have to say i said this and i was wrong yeah and it's okay and i changed my mind and it's okay as well yep right and it, again this was true 50 years ago but you could survive without it I think in in this time, you cannot survive without that amount of generosity, that amount of humility, that amount of inner search that you have to do to find your path.
0: Alessandro Alessandro mentioned about lifelong learning. And I think that's a very interesting concept because I, I find it even like for myself, like we study and we prepare ourselves on the period of life that we have less responsibility. And then, when we actually have like a lot of responsibility, we start to feel like important, and we don't train as much, and we don't get as much outside um, education and opinions. How how do you think people should address that?
1: I I think the first thing we have to understand is that lifelong learning is not necessarily formal learning. Okay. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I mean, when you travel, if you know other people, if you're constantly seeking people that are not people that are just like you that don't think like you this is all about learning learning is all this right you read you read the books you 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 keep you 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 pay attention to what happens you engage in discussions all this is about learning and and, and so lifelong learning is this okay number 1 number 2 if you want to focus on formal learning itself i think you need to basically there's so many opportunities now with the digital with the presential and it's just about you knowing what your challenges are. If your mind feels like it's being challenged and you're not comfortable, then just Google something and go find training. But of course, I think the real challenge now is gonna be making sure that you have credible sources, but even now that's getting better. So uh, again, I don't think we should do a big deal out of this long lifelong learning.
0: Okay, and these credible
1: sources? It's certainly not lifelong formal learning, but it's a lifelong quest. It's a lifelong and, quest, which again starts with purpose.
0: Purpose. And you mentioned now, and you mentioned, um, and, and um, I'll give the, the questions to you after, Alessandro. But you mentioned now about like the right sources and so on. How do you see like um, a little bit the role, and it's almost competition as well from um, I don't know companies like Coursera or Udemy or even other companies like Google and Facebook, especially Google that are going a lot into education and giving online content and so on. How do you see a little wow. bit the role of that? Do you, see, do you see that the need, you told like, it's definitely like a um, an experience going to university? I think- do so, no. you see it like becomes, it being replaced?
1: Point. So I, I don't, I, I five years ago, everybody was tremendously concerned about those guys. In addition to some technical issues that they have, for example, property rights and all that kind of stuff, but we, we, we're gonna skip that challenge, that discussion. I really think that what they're gonna be able to do is be a channel where we're going to mix, for example, we're going to mix a little bit of that so people do a few courses, but that the core will be the universities and will be the physical universities, and students are gonna be there and come there. So I, I think that there'll be a role for them, but they want this. University is not going to be like Netflix. I okay, like this. So unlike Netflix that will eventually kill the movies, uh, no, not the movies, but the cinemas, I don't think universities are going to be killed by uh, by Demi or by any of these guys.
0: Okay, Alessandro.
2: Yeah, just to stick with this uh, topic. Um, yeah, we can see this kind of complete online degrees as uh, competitors to traditional learning, but, uh, we are seeing another trend today that maybe uh, big tech companies could enter the educational um, industry to address this large market. And um, there, we have already people like Scott Galloway who write about possible big partnerships between elite universities and tech companies like uh, Meet at Google or iStanford. And do you see this happening. In the future. Okay, we have to separate
1: the the US situation because the Americans have a very different problem. And The problem is that the Americans have massively inflated the price of education. The cost of education for the average citizen is just outlandish. Right. And, and, And so when you have that kind of a cost of education, you wonder, you know, maybe I can deliver it online. It's much lower cost. I think that what will happen in the US is that the price of education will eventually have to come down. Uh, and, 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 and as it comes, because what happens with universities is that when you think of the cost of education, what is the cost of education? The cost of education comes because, of course, the cost of faculty is very high, right? But the cost of faculty is very high because tuition is very high. So we are in an equilibrium where students are paying a lot and faculty is earning quite a bit of their money. And I can sense it because, for example, they're pushing a lot, my salary is also because I'm competing with them. right? But if you actually move this to a new world, where you understand that faculty charges less, and faculty starts earning less, then it's just a new balance, it's just a new equilibrium. Right? And I don't think you're going to get lots of people that all of a sudden are going to say, oh, I no longer want to be an academic because I'm not earning as much as I was earning before. Right? So I think you're going you're to have two things. You're going to have universities in the model, the model of universities in the U.S., which, unless they bring prices down, digital is going to be a big threat. If they do bring prices down, and I think they will, then digital will be a compliment. Right? So I think what you're going to have is a compliment to this guy. So I, I think when COVID happened, and again, this is part of the unlearning as well. You know, you don't make the news if you say reasonable things. Yep. So we have to be very careful when people that make dramatic predictions about the world uh, and, and how much credibility you give them. So I would be, I don't think so, again, and I'm gonna come back to the beginning. The only thing that's gonna come back after COVID is the realization that digital learning will not be the norm, will be compliment, you're going, digital will be complementary to presential learning. This I'm certain. So the implication of that is, therefore, that the proposition that you're making to me there—that all of a sudden, Google is going to kill the American university out of business—I don't think it's going to happen. I think what will happen, and I am repeating myself, is a change in the business model of these universities with lower prices and again, also lower salaries for 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 faculty. So lower prices could um,
2: make higher education, especially in the US, accessible to a higher um, proportion of students, of young students. Do you think this will impact the job market with more competition or?
1: No, because I mean, I think two things. You have to make it more accessible. Two, above all, not just a matter of access- accessibility. You have people that now get into massive debt and there's a massive debt overhang because of, of, of tuition and faculty. And that has to, I mean, you cannot have someone that in order to get a degree, basically has to mortgage their entire life. So it's, it's worth than buying a house. It just makes no sense, right? So lower price will help you address this. And I think we'll help you democratize education. And, and but that's a good thing, I think, because you know it's not like in the end you have too many graduates. I mean, in the, in the future, in the day that's coming, you're gonna need even more and more graduates because and universities, again, I come back to the beginning will be the place where you will find these skills, this purpose, this sense of where you want, to, what you're finding yourself that we been talking about, and so the role of universities as places for preparing our youth for the future will increase, will not decrease. So you need to get more people educated.
0: Danielle, we are getting um, we are getting to the end of our podcast. Um, just one last question: What's your like dream pet project? Uh, for NOVA for the next couple of years?
1: Two, the innovation entrepreneurship ecosystem we want to create here and mash it with the curricula. I want every student that graduates from NOVA to have a sense of how to be an entrepreneur. Not because they want to become ones, but because I think this is the only way for me to develop collaboration, creativity, communication, courage. So entrepreneurship for us is going to be a school. And I want to create an ecosystem here in this school where they don't actually go to do this outside, but the companies are here on campus doing this with them. That's one. The second is the notion of purpose and making the academy of purpose something that really is effective in helping each one of my students figure out what on earth are they here to do throughout this life and what would they like to do when they die, what would they really like to be, if people say about them uh, at that moment.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Looking forward to to seeing those projects, and um, and it's always a pleasure. Like to to be part of the team, and congratulations on the amazing campus and the amazing uh, university you're building. This was the Lead Sachs podcast, and it is produced by Marika Agelberg, Marius Blusin, Philippe Santiago Lopes, and David Bernardo Santo. We'll see you next week.